recently our family has been uh, studying the Lewis and Clark expedition, the children in school, and they, they got a book that was a little beyond them, and so, uh, so I picked that up, and it's, it's been fascinating. At uh, a time when the country was in its infancy, little was known about anything, pretty much anything west of here. Uh, very little was known, and, um, and so as they, uh, as Lewis and Clark went out on their expedition, one of the, they had to use the, the rivers as their highways. There weren't any roads, and so they had to use the rivers. And they were uh, one of the things that uh, President Jefferson was interested in was a direct route to the Pacific Ocean, which we know is uh, doesn't exist now, but. Um, um, they were looking for that. And so they wanted to see, but they knew it at some point, the water that they were going up, the rivers they were going up, at some point the water had to go the other way. It had to flow towards the Pacific. Everything that they were doing is they headed west, they had to paddle upstream the entire way, all those hundreds and hundreds of miles, uh, river miles, they had to paddle upstream with thousands of pounds of, uh, of equipment. And... Um, so they were looking for the Continental Divide. When is it that we're going to start going downstream? Where is that divide? Now we know as they, uh, as they saw it and, and mapped it out, and then we uh, since then have, have uh, made many more discoveries and mapped it out thoroughly, we know that there's the Great Divide. All along, it goes all the way from Alaska, all the way down through Canada, the United States, down along the Rocky Mountains, and, and it keeps going down through Central America and then South America along the Andes Mountains. And so on one side, it flows into the Pacific. On the other side, flows into the Atlantic. So if rain falls on that, that one peak as that's, that makes up the divide, as, as, you know, as those individual mountains make up the divide, then... Rain falls, one side it goes down one way, one side it goes down the other way. Well, you're not here to talk about geography or hydrology, the study of water. So why do I bring that up? Because in a spiritual sense, Jesus is the great divide of all history, of all humanity. He is the point at which Every soul must go one way or the other. Jesus is the great divide. The moment that really makes the, uh, the, that watershed razor sharp is Jesus' work on the cross, his death and resurrection. So his whole life is an integral part of that, but, but especially that moment in history, that time in history when Jesus Christ, God the Son, is put to death, lies in the grave, rises again, and then ascends up into heaven. In that time, that, that little part of history, all people must go one way or the other. For Jesus, the cross is a focal point in his ministry. We've been looking at this. He has been setting his mind to this. 
So he began his ministry. He taught in Galilee. He was he was doing teaching in the synagogues. But then, as as we read earlier a few chapters ago, he tells his disciples for the first time that he is going to Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, he will die. He calls it his departure, his exodus. He's going out. And this becomes the the absolute focal point for Christ. As we come to this, you see something of of his mind on this, of his focus on this, what it is doing in in his mind because you remember Jesus is fully man he is fully God but he's also man he has as our catechism says a true body and a reasonable soul he has the mind of a man as well he is truly man and so he is thinking on this he is setting himself his ministry everything is focused on Jerusalem on the cross on the work that he has ahead of him And so we come to this passage. He's been teaching. He's been teaching about eternity, teaching about the foolishness of riches, the foolish rich man who put his hope, his desire on his things, his money, his storehouses. Jesus teaching his disciples specifically to put their trust in God, put their work, their effort into the kingdom, into eternity into things of eternal value rather than just the things of this earth. These things are passing away. Jesus says, don't be anxious about them. Don't set your heart on them. And we see him here finishing his speech to the disciples and then turning to the crowds that are around. This is still, as if you look at the first verse, there are so many thousands of the people that gathered together that they were trampling on one another. He began to say to his disciples first. And so he's speaking directly to his disciples. This, these words are especially given to the disciples in the hearing of everyone else. They weren't secret. It wasn't secret wisdom for them. But he was specifically teaching them and training them as they were to be the church planters of the New Testament church. Look at what he says here. I came to cast fire on the earth and wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see the, the emotion in that, the, the, how it is gripping him, what he's doing. The purpose of Christ is to be the agent of judgment. The agent of judgment. So here you have two pictures given, fire and baptism. Fire here is a metaphor for judgment, and baptism a metaphor for trial. So fire is often used as a picture of judgment, fire coming down, fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, as, as John the Baptist was teaching about Jesus when at the, at, toward the end of his ministry, we, you can read about that in Luke 3. Um, he talks about the trees, the, the bad trees being cut down and cast 
into the furnace. And John says that Jesus comes as, uh, as though with a winnowing fork to cast the grain so that the chaff would be burned in eternal fire and the grain would be preserved. This is what Jesus came to do. He comes to bring judgment. Baptism. Baptism is something that he uses again later with his disciples as a picture of what he's about to do on the cross. And here, this is from uh, Mark 10. Uh, A couple of the disciples had come to him asking to be uh, in his kingdom, that they would be basically the, the second and third in command, sort of. They would be there on either side of him. They wanted to be enthroned with him. And he says to them, um, uh, they say, uh, grant us, us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So he thinks of this as, as a baptism and, and whether you... Uh, See, baptism as immersion or sprinkling, either one works in this because he is to be totally consumed in, in this, with, this, with this, uh, this trial, this judgment. He's plunged into it. But what is the trial? It's, it's the, the real trial in the cross isn't as much the physical pain, which there is great physical pain, but it's the pouring out of God's wrath upon him. The just wrath of God of, that would be for sinners. And so you see here, there is there's a, a twofold judgment that he's speaking about. I came to cast fire on the earth, and with it were already kindled. Judgment comes to each person. When Christ came as the as the one, as that great divider. There are those who rebel against the light that God has given. The light of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. They turn against that. And the judgment of God comes against them in greater condemnation than they previously knew. Eternal condemnation. There is that judgment. But also in the cross, you see the judgment of God poured out on the... Not on the deserving sinners, but on those that, for those that, that are in Christ, those he came to save, the judgment of God is poured out upon Christ. The cross was about judgment and Jesus Christ taking it. The documents of our sins, the scrolls of our sins nailed to the cross. Jesus Christ taking that. But for those who would turn away from this, from this great mercy, there is greater condemnation. We love talking about John 3.16. It's an excellent verse for children to memorize. It's an excellent verse to have on the tip of your tongue because it is beautiful. It speaks of the beauty of God's love, the Father's love. Yes, the judge but the one who loved us so so much that he sent his only begotten son. But then as you just skip down to John uh, 3.17, where God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, we're, we're sounding good here. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. There is Christ who takes the judgment upon sinners and then there is the judgment that comes on those who reject him. It's a two-edged sword of judgment. This cross, this baptism, this trial that Jesus speaks of was always his purpose. It isn't something that he came to. It isn't something that was decided along the way. It was always his purpose. And we've seen that already in, in, uh, in chapter 9. There before the, uh, at, at the time of the transfiguration. Speaking of the cross. Speaking of the death that, he would, uh, that would come to him. And he speaks about it again, and even in the next chapter, he alludes to it in uh, chapter 13. If you look at verse uh, 31, uh, the Pharisees come and tell uh, Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He says to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. And then if you turn over to chapter 18, he goes with the 12. He says to them in verse 31, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. So for Jesus, this is his purpose. This is the goal of his of his ministry. He is working towards this. He is showing them and everything that's been building up. Uh, everything in the Gospels, building up to the cross, it demonstrates that, that this is the teaching of the Old Testament. As you saw just in the, there in Luke 18, Jesus says, this is what the prophets were talking about. You can go and read the Old Testament and find the flogging and find the, the disrespect, the torture, the death on the tree. It's there. It's been spoken of. This is my purpose. I will accomplish it. Because of that, we see that this is also the Father's purpose for Christ. This baptism, this trial. Jesus said in John 10, that for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. In Ephesians 1, it says that we're actually, we're adopted, we're predestined to be children of God. From when? For the creation. This is something that has been determined from eternity past. From before the world began, God had purposed to save a people for himself. We have the covenant of grace, the eternal covenant, as it says in 
Hebrews 13. And so you see that the Old Testament, as uh, it's not just recounting as some teach that uh, it's almost like God had tried and failed in various attempts to save people. That there were different means of salvation. That God was attempting and it just didn't work. Men were too rebellious. That's not what Jesus believed. It was all building up. You see, there's, there's no one, you have no understanding. You and I would have no understanding of the cross without the Old Testament. With all that redemptive history, we would not have any idea what the cross was about. The cross alone is, it doesn't make sense. One man dying on a cross, how can that help me 2,000 years later? But it was through all of that. God had sent prophets. He had ordained history and orchestrated it in such a way that the cross would, when it comes, when in the fullness of time, when God sends his son, it makes perfect sense. We understand exactly what it is. And then in case we miss anything, because we're thick headed, God gives us the rest of the Old Testament to clear it up. That means that all of human history, all of creation, has been working towards this breaking point, this pinpoint in history. And so, of course, it's Jesus' focus. He has been ordaining and working and sending out messengers and doing all of this work for this time, preparing for this time when he would bring about salvation through his own death on the cross, through his own resurrection. Those two things, they have to go together. If Jesus just died, it's pointless, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. We would be, of all men, most to be pitied. But because he has raised again, we have hope. So, of course, Jesus is pressed, anxious, distressed until it comes. It's, it's almost a holy impatience. This is what he has come to do. He is on a mission. He is here for a purpose. He is teaching them what they need to know. He is preaching to them what they need to know to make sure that there is nothing left undone so that when this comes about, no one will have an excuse Everything is set. He's like a runner running a race. Everything else is set aside. Every comfort, anything that is unnecessary. The runners, what do they do? They train, they train, they train, they prepare, they prepare, they prepare for this race. They take along with them only what is absolutely necessary for function, for, for traction, to help them run the race. They don't have, they're not carrying their wallet with their family photos in it. They don't have a backpack with sleeping bag to take a break along the way. No, they strip away everything. They're focused. And what are they focused on? The finish line. That's the goal. To run the race well, to run it 
as is necessary to finish it properly. As they get on the field and as they run that track, they don't even pay attention to the runners around them. They don't look. Their single focus is on the finish line. And Jesus, his, his, his focus is more and more keenly on the cross. That cross brings division. The cross of Christ brings division to the world. Now this seems confusing. Seems to go against what has been said before. Luke is the one that records the angels singing. Glory to God in the highest on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. We just read from from Isaiah a little bit ago in, in Isaiah 9. The Prince of Peace. There will be no end of peace because of him. The angels sing of his peace. And yet Jesus, he says here, you think that I've come to give peace on earth. No, I tell you, but rather division. Matthew go, In Matthew, he records Jesus going even farther. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Jesus did come to bring peace, and he did come to bring division. He comes to bring peace to those who are found in him. Those who put their trust in him, he is peace itself to them. The Holy Spirit gives peace. What does the apostolic greeting say? Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the apostolic greeting given to? It's not just a generic sort of cast it out. So the, so the peace around the world and everybody just hold hands and, uh, and we can sing songs together around the campfire. That's not the picture that God gives. It's not the picture that is painted in Scripture. Grace, mercy, and peace is to you who are in Christ. It's to the church. Jesus has already told the disciples when he sent them out on, on their missions, he sent them out and he said that they were to bring peace. They were to give the greeting of peace, a benediction to that house. And if those people rejected the message, if those people rejected them, then he said their blessing would return to them. It wouldn't land. There is peace to those who are in Christ. Even when, uh, when Paul in, in uh, Ephesians 6 is speaking about spiritual warfare, Weapons of our warfare, not carnal. The, the, the armor of God, the whole armor of God. He, spe- he speaks uh, as for, the, for their feet. He says that as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see that even there, Paul, Paul is readily recognizing there is an aspect of peace, an aspect of war. It depends where you fall concerning Christ. There is no peace for those who are outside of Christ. The enemies of Christ, for instance, Satan. He is the great enemy. For him, there, 
Jesus does not bring peace. There is an, a war going on between, even, even among the angelic realm, the, the human realm, all of it is involved in this war. Either war against Christ or for him. What did Jesus just say in the last chapter? You're either with me or you're against me. You either gather with me or you scatter. Through Jesus Christ, that sinners are given peace with God. Peace that they did not previously have when they were at enmity, when they are, were at war against him. He brings peace to that soul. Peace with God, peace within, because they are in him. But for the nations, for the Gentiles, what does it say in Psalm 2? The nations rage, the people plot together. Against whom? Against the Lord and against his anointed. Against his Christ. They plot. They plot in vain. In Revelation. Revelation is an interesting book. Hard to understand. Uh, Many bright pictures though. Oftentimes my children enjoy reading from Revelation. Even though if they don't understand all the imagery, and I don't understand all the imagery. Still, the, the pictures are so bright and so vivid. It's just a vivid book. But in Revelation, there you see the picture of the Lamb breaking the seals. No one is able to break the seals. And then the Lamb begins to break them. And as he breaks them, on the second seal, peace is taken from the earth. In the sixth seal, actually, why don't we just look at that briefly? Revelation chapter 6. This is where you get the sky rolling back like a scroll. In verse 14, Revelation 6, 14, the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the the throne And from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? The picture of the Lamb is just. We tend to think of it as. It's more accessible. It's it's soft. Almost cuddly. For some. That's not the picture of the Lamb in Revelation. The Lamb is the hope of the saints. They see him and they see the one, the lamb standing as though slain, but living. The only one who can open the scroll, the only one worthy to him. They worship to him. They sing. He is their hope. He is their salvation. But for the rest of the world, he's terror. 
because he is the judge, they fear the wrath of Jesus. Of course, Jesus brings division. Who is he claimed to be? God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He didn't ask permission to rule. He didn't ask for a vote. It's not a democracy. He didn't ask for if we wanted the legislation that he gives. The laws that are set, he has set them and no one can question them. It is only to obey. We are held accountable. He says, as as you see in Matthew 25, that he will judge. He will judge between the sheep and the goats. He will separate between those who are loved God and those who did not. Even those who did good works. But had no heart for God, he says, I never knew you. This is Jesus who claims this authority for himself. And so, of course, people hate him. How could they not? If they have rejected God and his laws and they desire to live in rebellion against him, they have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness. Jesus himself is the way, the truth, and the life. He is everything that they hate. He is the judge. How could they embrace him? They have to shut him up. Make him nothing more than a a wise rabbi that they don't listen to. A teacher. Demote him. They have to get rid of him. They have to do something because otherwise, Jesus, he doesn't leave you a choice. Either you are for Christ or you are against him. He doesn't leave you a choice as to whether you accept him sort of a halfway or or. He's either God or he's a lunatic. He's either who he says he is, the savior of mankind, or he's a madman with arrogance beyond anything the world had ever seen. Paul says in 1 Corinthians We preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. Jesus Christ divides. Jesus ends this passage here as he's addressing the crowds. He tells them they they can look at the weather, they can tell what's going on, they can see, they can predict what it's going to be like that day. You read the signs. You know what's going on. It's universal. In uh, in Alaska, in the interior of Alaska where my dad lives, in the wintertime it gets it gets really cold. It's uh, there'll be times when it's 50, 60 below zero and it, You'll have a cold snap where it will, it'll stay right there and just peg out at the bottom of the thermometer and, uh, and stay there for weeks on end. And it's, it's really a difficult time. But then there will be a breeze. A breeze will come in. And it's called a Chinook wind. And when you feel that Chinook wind, everybody knows that even just in a few hours, it's going to be 
much warmer. It, and by the next day, it might be 40, 50 degrees warmer. Everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. And they, they say, Chinook wind, it's cold snaps over. It's obvious. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's, you all can see the weather and read the weather. But why can't you read the signs of who Jesus Christ is? What he is doing? The fire that is coming to the earth in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus Christ. They've had all of the prophets. They've had all of the scripture. They have had everything that came through the exiles, all the promises through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through all of these different ones, through Daniel. They've had John the Baptist's testimony. He came as the prophet. He came preaching Christ, that his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will burn the chaff with eternal fire. They have the shepherd's testimony as they bore witness to the angels speaking of Christ. They have the Magi's testimony as they came to Jerusalem and spoke to Herod himself and all Jerusalem was in an uproar because the king had come. They have the testimony of the demons. That's, that's one of the things that got, got this, this conversation going in, in this, this section was Jesus casting out demons. And here, uh, as we read in, in uh, 13, chapter 13, he's going to continue to cast out demons. And this, seeing this demonic activity just kind of out in the open where everyone is seeing it and everyone is, they're almost used to it. And isn't that odd? There are demons everywhere. The demons are out there screaming, I know who you are, that you're the son of God. Jesus telling them to be silent. There are people being controlled by demons, thrown in fire by demons. All sorts of demons everywhere. Isn't that weird? That alone should have clued them in. And Jesus says, you can read the wind, you can read the sky, but you can't read the signs that are here before you. Jesus uses this and says, he uses the picture of a person about to go to court. They're about to go to, before the judge. If they go before the judge, it will go poorly for them. So rather than spend their time and their effort in trying to win a court case, for which they will most assuredly lose, Jesus warns them. If you go to prison, you won't get out until you pay the last penny. This doesn't mean that hell is a temporary setup for people who disobey God. Because in hell, we have no indication that people stop sinning. Their last sin isn't said to be on earth, and then they become somehow perfect. In hell, they continue sinning. You see that, actually, Luke talks about it in Luke 16, where he speaks of the, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is still doing exactly what he'd done on earth, trying to boss Lazarus around, trying to, to use him, acting as though he's still his superior. So 
So Jesus presses this to you. You've been given the signs. You've been given all the information you need. Look at it. Understand what it says. Understand the judgment that Jesus brings. And turn to Him because He is also the one who takes the judgment upon Himself. He is the only one in whom we can find security. Where do you find actual protection from the wrath of the Lamb? These people in in Revelation who are going to the rocks and the mountains fall on us. Do something, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. Where can you find protection from the wrath of the Lamb? In the Lamb. In the Lamb there is protection. In the Lamb there is forgiveness. Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. The only reasonable response to Christ is to profess Him before men. To put your faith in Him. To to do what was done we saw here this morning. As the the Acevedo family came forward and professed their faith before men. That's the only reasonable thing for us to do. Is to promise our allegiance to Him. To obey Him. To love Him. The other option is to stick your head in the sand. To suppress the truth in unrighteousness and hope that somehow all of this ends up being untrue. For Jesus, this, the cross, everything surrounding it, it was the culmination of what he had been doing in the past. Of what he had been doing through human history. The covenants with Noah. With Abraham. With Moses and the nation. National Israel. With David. Everything had been building up. And building up to this point. And he says. How great is my distress until it is accomplished. If God has put, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have put all of this effort and work and focus on this point in history. It should give you some indication of its importance to you. God has put the focus on this. Where do you have yours? Where is your focus? Jesus has already been telling you, take your focus away from things. Even the necessities of life, take your focus away from them. He had his face set toward Jerusalem to win salvation. 
He said he was in great distress until it was accomplished, and he did accomplish it. It is finished. Jesus, and I'll end with this, is reading from Philippians chapter chapter 2. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a glorious God we serve. We thank you. We thank you that we can come as those who have bowed the knee before Jesus. We ask that for any hearts that are not fully turned over to him, that by your word, by the words of Christ, by the warning signs that you have given, that you would tear those hearts down, that you would tear apart the ungodly strongholds, that you would open the ears of the deaf, that you would open the eyes of the blind, that they might see, that they might turn and find protection in the Lamb. It is our heart's desire that every person here, every person who hears This message, whether here in person or online, would bend the knee to Jesus now. That they might confess that he is Lord. To the glory of you, our God, our Father. We pray these things in his name. Amen.